Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant podcast, and I am talking to you from not quite sunny today, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, where I've been out here for, as I mentioned on the last episode, uh, the funeral for uh, my father-in-law, Paul Gavora, uh, who was just this amazing guy, and I'm going to try, if I can get to actually writing the G-File today, uh, um, writing a little bit more about him. Um, but suffice it to say, this was really a, it was really felt like an end of an era out here watching this guy who was such a huge role in so many people's lives sort of come to a close and, um, kind of felt a little bit like, you know, a funeral, the night's watch where we'll never see his like again kind of thing. Although it wasn't ironic. It was real. Anyway, I'm out here. I'm four hours behind, and we're doing this via Skype, which I normally do not like to do because I like to physically intimidate my guests in the studio and dominate them. <laughs> uh, and fortunately, I know I can still do that with Jim Garrity, who will be coming on in a second, uh, even by Skype, because I, I know things about Jim, and he knows <laughs> I know them. But uh, I do want to say we don't have an ad this week um, for reasons that uh, I will get to the bottom of no doubt standing amidst pools of blood and missing teeth um, at NRHQ one day when I interrogate the right people. But since we don't have an ad, I've been meaning to do this for a long time. I just want to do a a very short little two-minute rant about something. You know, magazines like National Review, Commentary, The Weekly Standard, we all have these podcasts now. We all run these ads for, you know, all these various project products. Uh, most of which happy to pedal, happy to sell, um, some of which I'm really happy to sell. Uh, you know, and if, if we can finally land that Jameson's contract, then, you know, everything will be right in the world. But the one thing that, that none of us do is actually ask people just to – we ask people to subscribe to the podcast. We don't ask people to subscribe to the magazine. And, you know, it's important to point out to people because I don't think a lot of people actually appreciate this. Um, and I mean this about all the little magazines, you know, National Review, Weekly Standard, Commentary, National Affairs. You can go down a long list. As much as the web strategies are really important and, and the web is the future and online stuff is the future, and I was a big part of that at National Review for a very long time, at the end of the day, a huge part of the business model still remains subscriptions to the print magazine in all sorts of ways, starting with just the money from subscribing to the magazine. And if you like what National Review does, whether it's the podcasts or the, or the website or the magazine itself, or if you like what the Weekly Standard does and, and commentary, I don't think people really appreciate how much just a simple subscription to these magazines matters in the mix of everything. Because it's not just the revenue from the subscription. It's also the ability to say to advertisers, here's our reach. Um, it's also part of including people in – the wider, you know, it's so much about this stuff is like marketing, the wider reach of National Review's subscription base. You know, it helps us reach people who might be inclined to come on cruises. It pays the salaries of a lot of people that a lot of people out there say they want to support. And well, look, I very much, you know, if I have, if I have to, you know, push comes to shove, say, would I rather you buy my book right now? Yeah, sure. But in the long term, none of this is possible for any of these podcasts, for so many of these writers and editors and the work that we do without subscriptions. 
And one day that'll change when we figure out the business models to be online for everything, or maybe we'll just sort of like in, you know, THX 1138, just, you know, uh, plug USB cards into everyone's brains. But for the time being, it really matters a lot. It's a very simple thing that people can do. Plus, you get a great magazine um, or you get a great you know, number of magazines. And you've, you'll find that the more you read these magazines, the more you want to read more of them, the more that you feel like you're part of the conversation. And you know, National Review in particular is this storied, great institution on the right that matters i think so much wherever you come down on the specific issues of the day and you can help you know and giving money to national review institute is great and if you have the ability to do that that's great if you can do all these other things that's great too but if you don't subscribe to national review or the weekly standard or commentary i feel a little bit like santa claus and miracle on 34th street telling people to go to gimbals but you know subscribe to all of them uh you know first in line should be national review of course but it makes a big difference and i think it makes a big difference for the subscribers too and they realize that once they do subscribe so anyway done with doing that i just it's bothered me that i you know i listen to all these podcasts and i never people you know and that we're plugging all these other products for advertisers but we're never plugging the mothership product itself and i think it's worth doing at least once so now to the rank punditry jim welcome aboard jonah it's good to be back uh, i want to start off by saying i'm really sorry to hear about your loss I too have one of those inspiring, came here with nothing, built an amazing life, fathers in law, father in law, and uh, uh, I thought your column about the the joys of immigration and what we gain from it, and how these sorts of success story that was brilliant, it was heartfelt, I think it was you know ranks among your all time best. Uh, and Suicide of the West is terrific. And after you've subscribed to National Review, if you don't have one, uh, shame on you. Uh, you will forever live in in infamy, uh, and you should go out and get one. Or two, or a bunch. All right, I'm 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 going to burn that uh, file I have on you, Jim. Thank you very much, <laughs> um, and thank you about the column. Yeah, you know, it, it does help. You know, it's sort of like uh, you know, some subjects are much easier to write about because just the actual story does so much of the work. Mm. And when you get a guy who like literally swam the Danube to escape the communists when he was 16 years old and came here with nothing and gets a master's from Milton Friedman, it's pretty easy to sort of, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take great gifts in storytelling, you know, um, uh, because <laughs> the guy's story itself sort of speaks for itself. And he was just this, this amazing guy. And my wife who, you know, was very worried about falling apart, did a wonderful job in her, her, she didn't do the main eulogy, but a lot of the kids got up and a lot of the grandkids got up. And, um, it was interesting. One of the points that, that Jess made was that, you know, one of the things that you learn from a dad like uh, like Paul Gavora is um, when you come to Washington is how so many people are kind of phony. You know, mm-hmm. that was that was one of the worst things that Paul could say about anybody was to call you a phony. He hated phonies. Um, he was among the most grounded human beings I've I've ever met. And, you know, Jess's mom, who I think went to mass almost I think daily. And was the most pro-life person I've ever met and, you know, cared so much about taking care of her family. And Paul cared so much about taking care of his family and all this kind of stuff. And they sort of lived kind of family values rather than just talked about them. And then you go to Washington and you meet all these people who are much better talkers than my father-in-law was. Uh, my father-in-law was not a talker. You know, he, he never really lost his thick Slovakian accent. And <clears throat> he often sounded like a, you know, the minister of 
agriculture from the Ukrainian Politburo reading, you know, uh, <laughs> crop reports. But he lived, you know, he he walked the walk, and he was just a he was a man, and and uh, and he or I should say a mensch, you know, and he just he, uh, you know, he helped enormous you know, hundreds of people in Fairbanks, you know. My brother-in-law Rudy was telling stories about because he shared an office with his dad. You know, for years, people would come in and repay loans that my father-in-law had forgotten about to help people get up. When Fairbanks was ravaged by a flood, he just basically told everybody in town, "Come into my supermarkets and take whatever you need." And um, anyway, he was an amazing guy. But let's talk about important things like. <laughs> Samantha B and Roseanne Darnold. My God, I I I just want to take a flamethrower to Twitter because like I you know I check in from all these moving things and I, you know I'm always you know two seconds away from crying, and then I check Twitter and it's just this. I mean, <laughs> I mean like garbage fire is kind. I mean I, I kind yeah. of remember when um Bill Murray gets slimed in Ghostbusters and oh I've been slimed. That's how I feel. Every single time I look at Twitter over this last week, and I don't know if Twitter is worse or just I have this perspective from being 4,000 miles away and dealing with, like, real-life stuff that it just seems more ridiculous. You know, Joe, you picked a hell of a time to be away from Washington. Um, and, and I had walked into this week – you know, look, we all go through, uh, you know, bumps in the road, rough times in life, crucibles. And I, I kind of gotten fed up with dealing with some very difficult people, both online and offline. And I just had this suspicion that, you know, some people in life are absolutely insufferably uh, hostile, nasty, bad faith, you know, all, all those kind of negative traits because they've really never had a serious consequence to it. And, and you know, the, the idea of you know, everybody's a... Uh, Everybody on the internet uh, claims to be, you know, six four and and two hundred some pounds of muscle and all that kind of stuff. And you always you always have that sense of like, oh, if you if we were face to face, would you have the guts to say the same thing to me? This has been a heck of a week for bringing out people's worst side. And I think you can, you know, this this domino effect of of Roseanne Barr and the tele and her television show, her statement on Twitter, uh, the appalling comparison of Valerie Jarrett to a, a Planet of the Apes character, and I, I, you know, got a lot of disagreements with Valerie Jarrett, but that's completely out of bounds. Then Samantha B doing that right on top of that, and I can jump in on on uh, Joy Reid here for a second. But I have an observation about the the Roseanne Barr cancellation, um, Jonah. That that kind of struck me as I don't, it's not quite a dog that didn't bark, but an aspect here. I'll, actually, I'll put I'll put to you as a question: Do you, how when Roseanne Barr's reboot or, or revival of her show turned into a huge hit for ABC, Jonah, do you think the ABC executives were really that happy about that? <laughs> no. I mean, I think some people who took credit for it, you know, probably were. But at the same time, I think it made them very uncomfortable. But I – did you keep watching, Roseanne? No. In fact, I, I you know – wasn't all that interesting. I was a, you know, it was, eh, it was an, I thought it was an okay show when it was on. I was never a super fan. People know that my television tastes, uh, particularly when it comes to canceled ABC series, uh, run in the direction of the, you know, spectacularly weird Twin Peaks. But I, I remember something that the co-creator Mark Frost had once said. You know, everybody, you know, for those who remember, you know, Twin Peaks was this huge hit in 1980. I'm sorry, 1990. In the first season, David Lynch got weirder as the show went on. The audience disappeared. But the co-creator Mark Frost said. We were a hit for ABC, but they never really liked us. Mm-hmm. And I thought that kind of fit for for Roseanne and this revival, 
which by the way went from being this you know it, it, by the way, it you know, said like 17 million uh, on the de- the debut, which you know completely won its time slot. You throw in everybody who watched on demand and other types, it got up to twenty five million. It finished with between ten and eleven million, which is still really good for uh, network television uh, in prime time these days. Um, but look, let's all be face you. Know, ABC is is a you know, sub uh, uh, is part of the Disney Corporation. Bob Iger, uh, head of Disney, is is uh, you know was briefly on Trump's. Uh, uh, CEO board stepped away is a pretty openly, you know, left of center guy. Uh, occasionally you hear rumors about the possibility he may want to run for president someday. ABC had zero interest in being seen as the pro Trump network or the somewhat Trump, you know, friendly network, or even the not always relentlessly hostile to Trump voters network. Right. I don't think that they really wanted to adopt that, uh, that image. You look at what's happened at, uh, uh, ESPN and various other parts of the Disney Corporation, they don't want to be touching, you know, the, the Trump persona with a 10-foot pole. So I had this sneaking, like, I kind of wonder, like, I said, if Roseanne Barr was rational, and I think it's pretty clear that she's not, she would have been aware of the fact that she, even even if the ratings were terrific, even if the ad revenue was great, she was never an, on ice that was all that thick over at ABC. And that if she gave them an excuse to cancel it, they would do it. And that's exactly what happened. Um, now, you occasionally see, you're hearing a bit of rumors that you know they might try to re- bring the show back without her. <laughs> I don't know if they're just going to call it Dan or, or, or the Connors or something like that. But uh, well, I mean, we had. I mean, this is not glop, but we had different Darrens on Bewitched. You know, we can. You know, I, I think would be fantastic, and the ultimate troll job of everybody is without explaining a thing in the actual narrative, replace Roseanne with the black woman. How about with Valerie Jarrett? <laughs> um, and, uh, but so I have a slightly different take on, on all this because I watched the debut cause I felt like I had to, but my daughter who has an unhealthy, well, maybe cause she's my daughter, um, has an unhealthy interest in gold, not golden age, but sort of classic TV sitcoms and TV that, you know, was on before she was born. She went all in on Roseanne, you know, rerun of the old ones, the original run. And so she was really excited about the new show and she's because she wants to watch it. My wife and I, we've tried to sort of watch it with her and my wife gave up and discussed in one of the episodes and said, I don't, this is just not funny. I don't like this. But what was interesting to me was that, you know, the, the, it was a bait and switch job. The first episode or two episodes were like these appeals to Trump voters, you know, uh, uh, naked appeals. But then the show very quickly became a sort of like a blue collar woke after school special <laughs> where, you know, the one of the kids is sort of gender confused. And that's great. And we all got to celebrate that. And there was a there was a very it was like a very special blossom. It was a very special episode with uh where Roseanne is bigoted towards her Muslim neighbors and then realizes by the end of the show, you should take people as you find them. It was very moving. And, and so there was a, there was a kind of a Trojan horse thing going on where the top line, and of course Trump fell for it was that, Oh, this, this shows this pro Trump thing. But the actual messaging of the show after the first two episodes was much more left wing than I think a lot of people who tuned out realized and I think that's probably one of the reasons why it trended down from that 25 million to 10 million is because it, it got kind of didactic and, and, and lecturing 
and I think, but you know, I'm not sure that everyone. I think your basic, your first point is right that people at ABC were not comfortable with the whole package, right? About it being sort of aimed at Trump, that it was going to be used as as a rhetorical, you know, weapon by Trumpists and and deplorables and all of that kind of stuff. I think that's true, and so they were probably looking for an excuse from day one. I think that's right. But this yeah. was a, this was a really easy excuse. And let's also point out, look, you know, back in the old series, she got in, you know, quite a bit of hot water over her uh, really just atrocious butchering of the national anthem. Um, if you're yeah. upset about Colin Kaepernick, I don't <laughs> I'm not quite sure why you'd shrug that off. Uh, and then the second thing is, that you know, look, a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2009. She did the photo shoot as Hitler putting Jewish cookies in the oven. And you just look at that and you're like, this woman has serious problems. Wow. Now, look, entertainers are a different breed. Uh, they're going to go off and, and do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, ABC, when they re-signed her and decided to, to bring back the show, had a certain amount of trepidation for this. Uh, you know, many folks uh, on the right said, you know, when, when the show was debut, we were made, you know, that, and I say we, I don't mean, you know, I don't think you or I or too many folks at National Review were like, yay, Roseanne Barr, you know. Yeah. The, the, the idea that, look, this, this was always nitroglycerin, right? This was always something that was going to blow up. Uh, it was just a matter of when. And, of course, you know, Roseanne Barr lived down to expectations. So, I mean, you know, it's, it, there is this uh, lament that conservatives are obsessed with uh, embracing any celebrity that comes along and says or, you know, sounds even remotely conservative. Um, but on the other hand, we're a celebrity-obsessed era, you know, in which, you know, uh, the, the Trump-Kim meeting doesn't really mean North Korea. It means Kardashian. Yeah, hey, look, I mean, I... I you know, I want to get back to a different point on this in a second, but, um, you know, uh, I remember, I think we may, I may even talk about this, talk about this with you on the last time you were on this fully functional podcast. Uh, I remember in 2015, 2016 telling, you know, liberal friends and Democrats that, that the, the Trump precedent is a far greater threat to the left than it is to the right, because our bench of celebrities kind of peters out with Scott Bayo and Ted Nugent. And <laughs> I still think to this day that that if Tom Hanks or George Clooney or one of those sort of top tier guys had announced in the summer of 2016 that he was going to run as an independent, he could have crowded Hillary Clinton out of the race, mm -hmm. you know, um, just because of the celebrity factor and all of that kind of stuff. And and you just see now on the Democratic side with their, you know, 16 man steel cage match primary coming and all of that, that they're very susceptible to the same sort of dynamic. And, you know, the, the, the entertainer thing in politics, I think is going to get worse long before it gets better. But you said on Twitter the other day, and I've been thinking about this and I, I've been thinking about writing about this in my newsletter, that the thing that's really animating everybody is the freaking out about double standards. Hmm. And I think that's right. I've sort of come to the conclusion that, I don't know, but 80% of the people who, on both sides, who claim to be outraged by X tend not to actually be outraged by X. They're outraged by what they see as the norm violation or the hypocrisy of their enemy. Yeah. Right? Uh, the, the comparison I'd put, and I, I described it as a half-baked thought, and a lot of people said, no, no, that looked like it had been in the oven just fine, is the idea that this is now, particularly on the right, you see a phenomenon that is kind of the social version of jury nullification uh, for those, you know, jury nullification, particularly after the OJ Simpson trial became this concept of 
uh, particularly African-Americans who felt like they lost faith in the justice system. They did not believe that there was equal application of the law. They did not believe that police brutality was taken seriously. They believed that police planted evidence. They believed that there was the entire justice system had gotten so corrupt and intolerable that they were going to vote not guilty, no matter what kind of evidence was presented to them, you know, the nullification as a, a vote of no confidence to say, until I trust the justice system again, I'm not sending anybody to jail. Now, I, I was not a fan of this philosophy. It strikes me as a really best case scenario. You're doing something extremely risky because some of those people coming in front of you really are dangerous criminals. And you're, it's, you know, right. you're in order to, to really stick it to the man and to show how upset you are with the system, you're going to put a dangerous criminal back on the street. If you're a conservative who says, you know, I'm not going to worry about what Roseanne Barr tweets because I'm really upset about Samantha Bee or I'm really upset about Stephen Colbert suggesting that Trump is having sex with Vladimir Putin or something, you know, well, here's the thing. Like, there are some things that should be objected to because they deserve to be objected to, right? The, the, the idea is to say that because there's such a double standard, I'm not going to have a standard for anybody. Right. Jonah, I don't know about you. I could live in a world where there was a much more polite, much more respectful, uh, higher discourse in which there are, you know, one, as soon as somebody said something out of bounds, there was a a broad rebuke, a broad sense of, hey, that's unacceptable. That doesn't belong. You know, this is not a, a New Jersey turnpike rest stop. Clean up your language. Clean up the way you're Or I'm fine with the Wild West and anybody can say everything they want. I want one standard applied equally to both. And I think when you look at the reactions to Barr getting effectively the career death penalty uh, and Samantha Beer getting a uh, – Samantha Beer, a Freudian slip there. It's, it's Friday afternoon. Um, Samantha B or – It's 9 a.m. for me, dude. Uh, <laughs> five o'clock somewhere. Um, <laughs> Samantha B or Joy Reid over at MSNBC, uh, you know, the tisk tisk at most – you know, I, I was glad to see CNN's Brooke Baldwin coming out and saying that uh, Samantha Bee's use of the C word was was totally unacceptable. I th- I think it's exaggerated when the right says, ah, you know, the mainstream media never objects to, you know, when the left says something outrageous. They do occasionally do it, not as often as I'd like to see them do it. But I think an interesting question is that does it ever have any real consequence? And I think that's the much stronger point that, you know, Michelle Wolf. Uh, there were quite a few folks who didn't like, you know, mainstream media reporters who didn't like what she did at the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. But Michelle Wolf's Netflix show just came off, and it was just the controversy just helped her. Uh, I don't think, you know, Samantha Bee is going to have any serious, uh, you know, career side effects of this uh, this statement. Nor, you know, Kimmel or Colbert or Colbert or Bill Maher or any of those guys. No, I, look, I I think that's right. You know, and this is sort of gets at one of my longstanding complaints about people who say they're against censorship. Censorship is one of these words that we tend to use for the censorship we don't like, right? So, like, whenever I get into debates with hardcore libertarians about this, and I've done it often because I'm that cool, um, you know, I always say to a libertarian, you know, so you're for total free speech and everything. And they say, yeah. And then I say, okay, so you're for, you know, and I don't mean just like a Cato libertarian. I mean civil libertarian, whatever. So you're for it being totally legal to have hardcore child pornography on Saturday morning television. And will they say, no, 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 no. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. That's argument ad absurdum. You know, that's just reasonable regulation. It's like, no, no, it's actually censorship and I'm entirely yeah. in favor of it. Right. And so, you know, we're all a little guilty of being in favor of censorship. It's where we want to draw these lines. And, but this isn't, dist- this isn't a question of the government's role. This is just a question about how we police ourselves. And it seems so obvious to me at this point that, so much of the pearl clutch, pearl clutching, you know, and fainting couch stuff 
has, has is is almost entirely about hammer and tong culture war politics or uh, or this double standard argument, which I think it's a legit it's a legitimate human feeling to say mm. why you know and this is something that you know this is one of the reasons we're not going to do a this is why we got Trump thing, but one of the reasons why the the flight ninety three logic appealed to so many people was this real belief that you know. Conservatives were the only ones playing by the rules. They were only ones living up to the standards they espoused, and the left never had to be was never held to account. and And I think there's a lot of truth in that in in specific contexts. Um, but at the same time, if your argument was if you were for your standards only because you thought they should regulate left wingers too. And not because you actually thought they were good standards, then they really weren't your standards. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, if you if you think that it's it, there's sort of a is versus ought thing here, right? I mean, if you think it's bad to call someone a feckless c word, it shouldn't matter which side of the political aisle it's on, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it just there's an objective, you know, uh, offensiveness to it, and yet so much of this stuff, I think, particularly in the sort of the Trump era is it's 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 perfectly fine to do something outrageous on Trump's behalf or to defend someone who defends Trump. I mean, like you saw it last week with these idiots sort of wanting to almost embrace Louis Farrakhan because Farrakhan said something half halfway decent about <laughs> yes, Trump. You know. And <laughs> oh, I gotta rethink my Farrakhan now. Wait a second, he's making sense. I mean, it's like watching some nature documentary where you just see the bunny rabbit inching closer and closer to the Komodo dragon, and you know exactly how it's going to end. And you're watching the people, and they're doing what they did it with Kanye, they did it with Roseanne. Mm-hmm. There is this sort of thing about how, you know, you know, we must, you know, anybody, if if you're the enemy of my enemy, you must be my friend. If you say things bad about the other side, you must be defended. And this is this is going to end so badly. Yeah. Uh, let me play not quite, you know, actually, I was going to say not quite devil's advocate, but maybe I am literally, uh, Jonah. I'm at a at the NRA convention in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, just talking to another conservative blogger. And this is really at the height of the IRS scandal. Um, the IRS was targeting the Tea Party groups, holding up their filings, auditing them to all kinds of, uh, you know, you know one sided political partisan nature. And the conservative blogger who's really up, you know, uh, irate about it said to me, you know, I want to see a Republican president and I want to see a Republican president audit the bejesus out of liberal groups. And I want to see the IRS used as a political weapon to harass the heck out of every liberal group they can find because this is – and I was was like, what are you talking about? He's like, this is the only way the liberals are going to learn. They do not believe that these things are inherently wrong. They believe that it's perfectly okay. The only way they're going to say, oh, wait, we shouldn't have a partisan IRS. We shouldn't have the use of our revenue collection service as a tool to hurt people because of their political beliefs. The only way they're going to understand that's wrong is if they're on the receiving end of it. Now, at the time, Jonah, I thought this was you know crazy talk, and I thought this guy was you know going around the bend. And uh, I was like, no, 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 no. I do – I am starting to get the feeling though, Jonah, that I, the argument that they – liberals – correction, I shouldn't say you know, just lump them all as liberals. I should just say too many people on the left are going to look at any tool as justified – you know, the end will justify the means 
Now, the problem is, I think once we open the door to this, and some might argue that you have you know, a Republican president who now is perfectly comfortable using all kinds of tools of government, like <coughs> pardons, to, to you know, reward his friends, punish his enemies, um, you know, use it to, to inflict you know, political pain upon those who disagree with them as much as possible. Um, I don't think, though, this ends with everybody learning the right lesson and going back to the original rules. If, it, if I thought it was going to lead to that, I'd be more on board with it. My suspicion is that everybody decides, okay, the end justifies the means is the only rule we have, and we end up in a much more you know, dog-eat-dog realm of politics. Yeah, so I don't want to – well, actually, I do, but I'm not going to turn this into a long plug for my book. But when uh, people you know, are, I, I lob that volleyball. You can spike it if you want. <laughs> no, no, but people – People ask me, like, you know, so if suicide of the West, what, what, what is this? What does it look like if we don't pull ourselves out of it? And it's a good question. And I don't think in the near term we're going to be, you know, fighting over canned goods and drinking puddle water. But there are only about 15 percent of nations in the world have what uh, Douglas North calls open access societies, basically what we think of as Western democratic societies, you know, you know rule of law, demo, you know, democratically elected leaders, contracts, rotating you know, institutions of power, all that kind of stuff. Most societies, even today, are what all societies were for about 10,000 years, which were what they call natural states, where there's just a loose alliance of elites who control everything and don't allow insurgents, innovators, entrepreneurs, upstarts to break the sort of monopoly of power between a few elite institutions. And it seems to me entirely possible that that's what we start sledding to if everybody starts to embrace this. There'll be a horrible hammer and tongs fight for about 15 or 20 years until some, you know, the, the, the losers truly lose. And then it really will be this sort of Brazilian or you know, a third world kind of arrangement where or where the elites run everything. And I think the way you get there is by doing this ends justify the means BS. And, you know, the problem when ends justify the means is that eventually the means become the ends. And you get this situation where, you know, it's sort of like, you know, let's do it to own the libs or their tears are delicious, right? That was supposed to be a means, right? This was a means towards a policy victory or, or the consequence of a policy victory was that it would piss off liberals. And I get that. But when you say that the, the, the means become the ends and unto themselves, there's no limiting principle to how far you want to carry that kind of stuff. And so my problem with your anonymous blogger friend argument, um, at least in part, is that it is the process by which you say, well, we just need to audit all the liberals. We need to you know, uh, you know, persecute them so they know what it's like to be persecuted so they'll learn the right lesson. In the process of following that strategy, you will lose sight of what the point of it was. Mm. And you will not say, ah, now we are all going to live an enlightened life because we've taught them a lesson. It is simply going to be, this is, this is perpetual war against our enemies for all time. And so it's sort of like, you know, the Treaty of Westphalia is what is sort of you know, which ended the wars of religion in Europe and all that kind of stuff and is largely credited as sort of the, the, the epical starting point of the birth of religious freedom and toleration. And, you know, people don't understand that the wars of, you know, the, the religious wars of Europe that you know went on for a long, long time and killed a lot of people, they were not wars for religious toleration. They mm. were wars to crush your religious opponents. And it was only when, I think it's Herbert Butterfield who says this, it was only when 
through the exhaustion of discovering that you cannot conquer your that you cannot convert your enemies by the sword, that people started to say, "Hey, look, this is this is getting us nowhere." We need to come up with some rules about how to tolerate people who disagree with us. And that's where the sort of the right to be wrong is born. And the argument from your blogger friend is essentially, well, we should be like, you know, the troops slaughtering the Huguenots. Because (laughs) at the end of the day, at the end of the battle, the survivors will realize what it's like to be persecuted. That's not the lesson, you know, that, that anyone takes in the moment. And... It seems to me it's a it's a purely a rationalization for your will to power and your desire an understandable desire for tit for tat vengeance, yeah. but that is yeah. not can't be a policy goal. I'm going to be evil for a little while. <laughs> Very rarely right. works out the way people plan it to. You know? We'll give into the dark side just for now, yeah. and then we'll realize how important it is to be good again. It doesn't yeah. you know it doesn't work that way. So, what else do we need to? To, to cover. You were at the NRA convention? I was, yes. I'll have a piece in the upcoming issue. Um, this is the this was in Dallas this year. I'm trying to kind of get a sense of, you know, it's worth noting. 2016, uh, I'm there with our, our friend and colleague, Charlie Cook. Um, Charlie Cook and I, and this is, you know, this is like, you know, let's say late spring. Trump is pretty clearly the Republican nominee. And the question is, you know, is the NRA going to endorse him? Uh, traditionally, the NRA would endorse the more pro-gun president, uh, and you know, usually, usually the Republican, uh, they would do it towards the fall. And you know, Trump had a mixed record on this. He said he had a concealed carry permit, <clears throat> but he had in one of his books that he supported the uh, assault weapons ban and and waiting periods and all that. And the NRA at that convention in Kentucky just comes out and decides we're endorsing him, and they give him the endorsement. And uh, I, you know, I believe largely, you know, helped and assisted by. Two of Trump's sons are big-time hunters and much more into the gun culture than Trump himself is. Uh, at one point during his acceptance speech, when Trump is talking about how about being endorsed, what a great honor it is, and how you know proud he is, and all that stuff, he's, you know, my sons are very big hunters. I, I do think at some point you've got enough guns. And you can <laughs> kind of hear a pin drop in the audience, <laughs> suggesting that deep down in his gut, Trump doesn't quite get it. But look, between, you know, Trump and Hillary Clinton, who said that the Heller case in D.C. was wrongly decided, who's, you know, very clearly a, a opponent of gun rights, uh, rather wildly argued that the uh, uh, the handgun effect, the, the handgun ban in Washington, D.C. was mostly about protecting toddlers. In one of the presidential debates, you know, the NRA endorsed Trump. Trump won. They put resources and door knockers and, and ran TV ads and did all kinds of stuff when a lot of other organizations, like, say, the Koch Network, were like, nope, nope, we don't like this guy. It's not, we don't think he's a real conservative. We don't think he really shares our values. We're not in on this one. <clears throat> so the NRA really thought they'd be in a situation of, okay, we after years of, of waiting, we've got a pro-gun House of Representatives, pro-gun majority in the Senate, if not maybe 60 votes. We have a pro-gun president. Let's enjoy the good times. And by a decent number of measures, there are, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch uh, starting most obviously, uh, repeal a couple of regulations enacted in the last couple of days, the Obama administration, the president himself is, st- and you could say, you know, post Parkland, uh, other than the bump stock ban with the NRA said it's perfectly fine with, uh, and the fixed Nix bill, which they had no objection to that. There really hasn't been any serious push for gun control at the federal level. Uh, Florida passed its gun ban, gun law, uh, raising the age to purchase a firearm to age 21. NRA did not like that. 
Governor Mary Fallon of Oklahoma just uh, vetoed a constitutional carry law down there, kind of disappointing for them there. I think the really most interesting, though, is that Trump himself remains this roulette wheel on rhetoric because, you know, you mm-hmm. remember the, the White House meeting where he said uh, uh, on, on these, you know, restraining orders, uh, at one point Trump says, I say take the guns first and then do the due process. Right. Which, you know, and, and he appeared to endorse the assault weapons ban, told Steve Scalise that they'd never get concealed carry reciprocity. Steve Scalise, shooting survivor, is there <laughs> saying, hey, it's really important. <clears throat> concealed carry reciprocity is basically this idea. It's been uh, – came very close to passing back in 2013. If you have a concealed carry permit in your home state, then every – it's like a driver's license. Every other state should recognize it. There should not be any other issues. You know, a bunch of states have recognition of other uh, other states' ones. The idea is to make it all 50 states. You're good everywhere. Uh, and this was the top legislative priority for the NRA. Passed the House. Uh, in the IR, NRA's vise, a really good version passed the House. And if it came to the Senate, you'd get pretty much every Republican in, to support it. The question is, how many Democrats would you get? And the chances are you probably wouldn't get the 10 that you need to break a filibuster. Mm-hmm. And... If you got that seven or eight, they wouldn't let them do nine because nobody wants to be the one who, you know, was the deciding vote against concealed carry reciprocity. Right. Well, then you've just given six or seven red state Democrats a good vote several months before Election Day in a midterm election. So, right. Yeah. Anyway, that's the the whole tour. Wait, still pick up the magazine, even though I just told you everything I wrote it in, in the. <laughs> um, so here's the question I I really that comes the first and foremost to my mind. Um, Charlie Cook at the sort of the the stalls and display stuff because I assume at NRA conventions there's a huge like room where people are selling oh, yeah. stuff right right oh well okay not selling acres and acres yes yeah oh. so is Charlie Cook sort of like what you would think Bill Clinton would be like at the Adult Video Award kind of <laughs> convention around all those guns I mean does... yeah yeah uh, you know Charlie is a connoisseur now I, I usually go with my buddy Cam Edwards who. Uh, Host a show on NRA TV, although he never gets mentioned in the uh, coverage of NRA TV because he doesn't say outrageous things or smash television monitors or do things like Gallagher. And walking around the NRA convention with Cam is like going anywhere with Elvis in like 1957. Um, but so, yeah, so Charlie is a big one. I'm not going to disclose whether I own guns or not. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea. I am very much a, you know, uh, uh, you know, suburbanite guy who grew up in New Jersey and who, you know, thought in my teenage years. I don't know about you, Joan. I know you live it up in, in New York City, which was even more anti-gun probably than New Jersey. Look, I don't need a gun, so why would anybody else? Uh, and yeah. then, of course, you know, uh, you, you come to that realization of, oh, wait a second. Even if you feel safe in where you're walking around, you know, the Second Amendment is there for the guy who's got to work the midnight shift at 7-Eleven uh, or the young woman who's got to walk back through a parking garage late at night in situations like that. So, I mean, um, I, you know, there are other folks at NR who are uh, uh, more thoroughly – uh, and meshed and steeped in the the uh, the gun culture. I try not to sound too much like a, a gorillas in the mist uh, correspondent when I go there. It's always fascinating. The other things, yeah, you, you, yeah. when you go there, you find, you know, you want to talk about where America's small businesses are. Jonah, there are thousands of ones that just make holsters or just make, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, but yeah, so, so you know, he's he's a kid in a candy shop. That's you know that's that's you know Charlie's a, a happy guy that weekend every year. I, I appreciate your almost is your your stance on whether or not you have a gun is really similar to Israel Israel's stance on whether it has nuclear weapons. The strategic ambiguity of it yes. all is, is an advantage. Yeah, no, look, I mean, like one of my favorite, I guess you call it camping stores, outfitting stores, is this place called the um, 
the woolly rhino here in Fairbanks and they have stuff. Cause like people go camping here are more serious than people go camping in like Connecticut. Um, and so they have like really cool stuff that is really hard to find even at like REI and that kind of thing back home. And so I always like to stop in there and, uh, but you know, they've got, you know, half the store is essentially dedicated to guns and the paraphernalia that goes with guns. And, you know, whenever I come up, like whenever I come up here, uh, it, it is a great antidote to any sort of blue city bubble thinking about, <laughs> you know, sort of everything. And it's funny. It's like, uh, as, as people have heard me talk about before, and we're going to get the author, Ethan, Ethan Nicole on, of, of bear Mageddon on here in a little while to talk about the, the, the real threat of bears. But, you know, throughout my marriage, uh, whenever there was a treatment of bears on TV as uh, friendly, cute, Coca-Cola sipping, <laughs> wonderful things, right, my wife would shout, bear propaganda! And, um, and, and like, one time she even slapped the screen when my daughter and I were watching some sort of Disney thing about bears. And the thing is, so I've actually done... We actually took the long route the year after we got married, driving from Fairbanks to D.C. Mm-hmm. And because um, we wanted to go through the highest uh, border crossing in North America. So we actually went north from Fairbanks, which is, you know, and Fairbanks is like 300, 200 miles south of the Arctic Circle. It's north. Um, and um, <laughs> and the thing is, for 2,000, 3,000 miles through the, you know, through Western Canada and the Canadian Rockies, you you take uh, we would take Cosmo, you know, or the late great Wonder Dog on, you know, at some rest stop. There's a little trail and all that kind of stuff. Five minutes out of the parking lot, you're in friggin' grizzly bear country, you know. And it's not to say that they're everywhere, you know, like interns at AEI getting into the <laughs> the, the food in the refrigerator or anything like that. But they're, you know, you go to any diner and there are pictures of oh, this is the bear we shot, you know, in in '97 and out by the dumpster and this, you know that kind of thing. And so you hear the rustling of bushes and stuff, and you're like, I totally now get why I would want to walk around with a gun, you know, and yeah. and a serious gun. Because if you shoot, if you have some sort of piss ant like 22 and you shoot a grizzly bear, it's just going to make it mad, you know. Um, but uh, now the gun culture up here is really, really strong. And, you know, every I think every single one of my brothers-in-law has at least one gun in their house here. My father-in-law used to keep, you know, a loaded gun under his bed. <laughs> um, you know, there's, it's just a different world. And people who in out East don't really yeah. understand that a big chunk of America, maybe not as intense as some people in Fairbanks, but you know, a big chunk of America lives sort of this way, you know, yeah. and has guns in their lives. An enormous amount of the gun debate in this country really is a cultural debate. And it yeah. really is, you know, look, we don't live the way you people do. What's wrong with you? And, uh, you know, as I said, like, you know, if you don't feel the need to own a, you know, first of all, it's not like anybody's saying, uh, particularly this comes in the context of arming teachers. I haven't yet to run into anybody who says, no, no, put the guns in the hands of teachers who don't want them. Right. Put some, <laughs> right. You know, no one's making that argument. You know? <laughs> Although I think there was back you know, one of the first articles I ever wrote for NR in print. Uh, they actually you know, used used. Did you have some tie to Vermont in some way at one point? No, but I wrote a big cover story about how. Vermont was awful. Okay. Uh, 
This is during I, the Howard Dean boomlet. Okay, because it was around that time. I looked at Howard Dean's record as governor. And yeah. he used to brag that he was rated A-plus by the NRA, and he was, uh, because there really was no – there was very little, if any, pro-gun control sentiment in Vermont, despite the touchy-feely progressive Ben and Jerry's uh, mood that they have up there. It was just completely – Well, also, yeah. this is a really important point. Um, have you ever looked at the Vermont Constitution? It comes like a hair shy of saying, you must have a gun. Okay, because at one point, they, somebody in the state legislature actually introduced that, that there yeah. was going to be legislation to require every person in Vermont to have a gun in their home. Obviously, it did not pass, um, but just, it was a very, a very different philosophy towards that. Um, but you know, no one's really you know, making that argument. It very much is, though, that like if you live a safe life where you don't feel a need to own a gun, God bless you. Right? You're, right. you're a very lucky person. There are a lot of people in this country who don't have that. Uh, who don't have the, the the certainty of knowing that if, God forbid, something ever happens, there's an intruder, uh, stalker, crazy ex-boyfriend, you know, pick pick your nightmare scenario. They dial 911. There's no guarantee the cops are going to get there in time to resolve the situation. That's why they choose to be armed. I have a bone or two to pick with the uh, uh, the new book by Selena Zeno and Brad Todd. Oh, look, 90-some percent of it is a really good book and I think a really good examination of Trump voters. And there's a whole chapter in there about women. And the book almost focuses almost entirely on you know the Rust Belt, the upper Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, and Michigan. And there were a decent number of, of women voters in those states who, who you know were not totally on board with a good chunk of the conservative agenda. But the it was very clear that the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton on the left in general, believes they should not be allowed to own a gun. And that's a deal breaker for them. They, they are not on board with that. Uh, and it really comes to a you – know, like I, I look at the, the pro-gun control arguments as a fundamental lack of, of not just understanding but I think empathy towards a lot of people who feel the need to have a gun in their lives. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, all right. So we're, we're coming to the close on all of this. I wanted to ask you – so Andy McCarthy, who let's all stipulate, we all love Andy, and Andy's great and an incredibly great resource. He came to the defense of Dinesh's pardon, and and he says it's just. And I'm inclined to agree with him. I do think it was a political prosecution. I am not a fan, and you don't have to chime in on this if you don't want to. I am not a fan of much of what Dinesh does these days. I don't like how he does it. I think it's a shame because he's such a smart guy. And I think that he's making a grave mistake in, in much of his, you know, shtick. And I think it is, a lot of it is shtick these days. And he's one of these guys who has sort of internalized this sort of, you know, the means become the ends kind of thing in a lot of ways. But I also think he was probably the, – the, the prosecution of him and the, and, the, and the sentence was excessive. And even though I think he probably was guilty of the actual crime – but I guess my problem with Andy's take on this, I mean, a better example is Scooter Libby, right? I definitely think Scooter Libby's pardon was justifiable and justified. But, and I hate talking about people's intentions, but the idea that this was, I, I, I objectively, I agree with Andy that it was probably, that it was just, but I don't think justice had anything to do with Donald Trump's motivations for doing it. Thing for the wrong reason. Yeah, and, well, you know, so, like, the, my, I, do you know, this is a factual question, because I've only been able to dip in and out of Twitter 
um, and, and, and the internet, someone was saying that the Office of Pardon had not ever even spent a minute reviewing um, an application from Dinesh because Dinesh didn't apply for a pardon. This was just Trump, you know, self-actuating mm. on this. Do you know if that's actually been confirmed? I don't. I, I would say it doesn't surprise me in the slightest, though. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, you know, this the 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 idea of this popped into Trump's head one day seems uh, in line with the decision making we've seen in the White House for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, I, it just seems to me that we're heading towards a place where it's kind of like a giant game of duck, duck, goose, where he <laughs> he pardons, you know, maybe pardon a week, pardon a day, pardon, you know, pardon just starts giving out pardons to. John Smith, Joe Blow, Dinesh D'Souza, blah, 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 Paul Manafort, blah, 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 you know, and, and like maybe we won't notice. <laughs> and I, I, it, it's a prof- it's sort of like this what I think is truly outrageous, this uh, teasing of the job numbers this morning that Trump did on Twitter. You know, people, you know, people get their panties, say I get my panties in a bunch about norm violations. But if if conservatives don't believe in norms, what what the feck are conservatives for? Yeah. What are we here for? Backtracking just a little bit on on the Dinesh D'Souza pardon. Um, I've it's been a while since I've dug into you know campaign finance as as a you know big part of my beat. I have heard people saying that they've seen you know donations that came from you know children or from relatives that pretty obviously were a form of working around the donation limits by basically saying oh and. I'm going to max out. I'm going to max out in the names of my wife and kids, you know, and as a way of working around that. If that is common, you know, then you start getting into a question of like, okay, you know, why are you making an example out of Dinesh D'Souza when this is going on with so many other people? Uh, you mentioned also the rattling off of the uh, potential pardons there, uh, Jonah. And one of the you know, arguments you'd see is like, wait a second, why is uh, Dinesh D'Souza getting prosecuted? When Rosie O'Donnell pretty clearly has done the exact same thing by using multiple addresses and changing her name yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. and all of her donations. And here's the thing I think is going to build towards, Jonah. I think someday Donald Trump is going to pardon Rosie O'Donnell. And everybody's <laughs> going to say, what are you talking about? You know, why would he ever do that? Trump hates Rosie O'Donnell. Don't you think he would love knowing she would have to accept a pardon from President Donald Trump to get out of legal trouble? Don't yeah, you think no, he would find that delicious? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, I mean, it's like a, that first, I, that first interview with Trump and Pence, um, after, at the convention and that the way that Trump was like, no, it's okay. You can talk, you know, he likes to kind of like bend people to his will, mm. um, and, you know, force them to sort of bend the knee. And if he could get, you know, Roseanne to, or Rosie O'Donnell to sort of do the pilgrimage to Trump Tower to beseech him for a pardon. I think he would do it in a heartbeat, as long as there could be cameras in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, Humiliation is only worthwhile if everybody, if everybody else gets to see it. But I think even are, if she doesn't, knowing forever that she owes him, like that would, that would just you know put him to sleep with a warm smile on his face. But I thought, see, this is one of the reasons why I want to get to the bottom of whether Dinesh applied for this or not, because I thought to get a pardon you had to admit guilt. And I, I don't know if that's simply just sort of a bureaucratic norm of, about the application process or Shit. if there's something more to it. Because you can't pardon someone for something that they didn't do, right? You know, 
But can't you um, pardon someone who you believe was wrongfully convicted or something? Or I, I mean, I, I think it's an absolute power, so sure. But yeah. I mean, this also gets to the fact that you know, there's a point I made on Twitter yesterday. Everyone freaking out about this, and I and I do think he's abusing the spirit of the pardon thing for personal reasons and all that. But you know, when the Constitution was ratified, there were only three federal crimes: treason, uh, piracy, and uh, one other. I can't remember what it is, but it's in the Constitution somewhere. And um. And then in 1790, they added 17 more federal crimes. So, you know, the idea that the president's pardon power used to be about these grave things that really impacted on sort of statecraft, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea to sort of, you know, fend off the kind of divisions that lead to internal strife and insurrection by sort of showing magnanimity to your political opponents and all of that. I mean, it was a real major part of statecraft. But now, because we have something like you know, last time I checked, 800 trillion federal crimes. Um, you're basically giving the president the power to do all sorts of things the founders never intended. And I'm not saying the president shouldn't have his pardon power, but it's it's this is what you get when you federal when you make so many things a federal issue is you get you give the president the power to pardon federal stuff. And you know, I I, I think that's problematic. You know, yeah. But. Yeah. Actually, now, now that you're you're laying this out, Jonah, I'm realizing I I think I have a bigger problem with the Sheriff Arpeo pardon. Yeah. No, that one was really than I do with D'Souza. Right. I mean, D'Souza, you could at least say, Ah, come on. You know, you could have you could have slapped him on the wrist. You could have given him a fine. Yeah. You know, he was that. an outspoken critic of the administration, and the administration came out. You know, like I, you know whether or not you buy into it, there's at least enough evidence to make a reasonable uh, argument about that. Arpeo, I agree. The, the punishment didn't sit crime for Dinesh. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. No, but Arpeo is a bad person. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, it, it's fascinating how he's perceived as law and order when I think it was uh, our, our friend John Gabriel has laid out, you know, just just a just wild off the charts abuses of power, um, the sort of thing that conservatives traditionally would be, you know, very worried about. <clears throat> but if he's, you know, perceived as tough on illegal immigrants, I guess we'll just hand wave away the rest of that. You know, again, that's that would 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 bother me more. And you know, look again. If you, I don't want to turn into exactly what we've been announcing this conversation. But like, look, you know, this comes after the Mark Rich pardon, um, the the Puerto Rican terrorists that Bill Clinton pardoned. Uh, Obama had his share. Of, like, you know, the argument of you know, we, we've been trending in this direction for a pretty long time. Uh, oh, sure. of, of, yeah. So anyway. You know, I, I think that's right. And I, as I always keep saying, Trump isn't the cause of our, all of our problems. He's a symptom of them. Um, and he makes some of our problems worse. Yeah. And um, and I do think it's funny, though. I do think that the pardon power is kind of what he thought presidential power was going to be like in every realm. Right. That it's just this because this is one of the few areas where we actually give essentially monarchical power to the president. Yeah. Right. A, Unreviewable. A, plenary power of forgiveness a thanos like ability to snap your fingers and half your problems go away forever <laughs> all right so uh we got to wrap this but very quickly um and guys there'll be probably be some spoilers here so you can tune out now or skip through this what do you think of uh solo jonah i must be completely out of step with everybody else because i really really liked it um i might even argue this is the best movie they've made since the original trilogy this, you know, uh, uh, it may help that Han Solo was always one of my favorite characters. Yes, I know uh, all the the bad karma and juju they had, the change of the the directors and all that stuff. I, I think what makes it work uh, way better than than you know any of the certainly the, you know we're not even going to mention the prequels; they didn't happen. 
and the most of the uh, you know ones we've seen in the modern era since Disney bought it. This is a story that's not about having a grand destiny or being the chosen one or or Jedi or Sith or anything like that. This is about uh, being a, a you know down on his luck guy with with you know not much <clears throat> and and you know in the the shadier corners of the universe and just trying to get by. Um, I, to to make the comparison that I think you know some people might find you know blasphemous. Jonah, this this was very Firefly esque. This was very Star-esque. I saw you make that point on Twitter, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about it. I agree with you. It's interesting because, like, everyone else I've argued with, I've taken the position that I liked it and they were mad about it. And now you liked <laughs> it more You liked it more than I did, but I liked it. And I agree. I, I thought it held together pretty well as a movie. I think Pod did put his finger on the fundamental problem, though. The this apparently only takes place a few years before the original Star Wars in New Hope, right? Mm-hmm. And the whole sort of premise to Han Solo's character in A New Hope is that he's this rogue who finally gives into his conscience at the last minute and does the right thing. But that's not really who he is. He's generally he's Han Solo. He's in it for himself, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and I think John is right, is that the Han Solo in Solo is a Boy Scout through and through. He's always doing the right thing. He's not selfish. Right? He just wants to get back to his girl, wants to do everything to save his girl. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of you know, rogue, maverick, bad boyness to him. And I think there should have been. Um, okay. But other than that, I think it's. I think it was a good movie. I liked it. Right. You know, right. as defense attorney for Ron Howard and the screenwriters and all that stuff, I, I think what's very clear is you're right. So from that those opening, you know, artful Dodger Oliver Twist scenes, the idea is that you know, for Han is to the extent he's an idealist, he does he believes in Hera, right, and he believes in hope for a better future, right? That someday he and they are going to get out of there. And they're going to live their dream of, of you know, having a fast car and a fast ship and seeing the universe. It's worth noting he's not interested in liberating everybody else, right? He's not interested in changing Corellia and the, the you know, the awful uh, conditions of everybody else there. He just wants to get himself out, right? So that's the first thing is that he, he himself and Kira out. <clears throat> By the end of the movie, yes, he does give the money off to the, the – the one note I would say struck me as kind of implausible is this, you know – adorable teen girl who's leading the pirate gang that that kind of mm-hmm. like eh, okay now you know that's that's the only argument i think where you could say okay it's a little social justice warrior in, in there but but the, by the end of it you know, he does shoot his mentor first right no he's, that was great that was great i right? had to explain to my daughter how important that is in the yeah. canon he's yeah. seen kira fly away so even though he's you know buddies with uh with chewy and he goes back and he wins the ship from lando and all that stuff he's had his heart broken Right. He, so he, he may by the end, by the closing credits, he is a more cynical person. I think it's pretty glaringly obvious that they're hoping to make more movies with this so that maybe in each successive movie, we would see him become a little more self-observed. And remember, he chooses to not join the rebellion or, or the, the bike, the teen yeah. biker, all right, all right, you know, all right. yeah, yeah, you know? Okay. so there's my yeah. argument that, and also again, he, you know, if you're going to make this story, you can't make him a total SOB by the end of the movie. He's got to be somebody who just doesn't care. And somebody made the argument that they were upset by the, um, the slave mining scene uh-huh. in which very much, you know, Han's goal is to get that uh, uridium, bolidium, you know, special space rock stuff. And he's Unobtainium. Not, 
Yeah, unobtainium. <laughs> uh, that he totally doesn't want, you know, he doesn't really care about, he doesn't even blink twice at the fact that there's slavery going. He doesn't even help the Wookiees. Chewbacca goes to help the Wookiees, right? Yeah. Who and are think, really ugly for some reason. What, what was with the yeah. Wookiees looking like orangutans? I mean, I that's why they weird. ran out of the budget on the, on the Wookiee masks. <laughs> $400 million and they, you know. Yeah, I got to yeah, say, like, one of the most amazing things was how, I mean, you know, this Alden Reich or whatever his name is, he looks a little like Harrison Ford, but they found an actor who looked exactly like the original Chewie. It was really I, impressive. I, I know you're saying that sarcastically, Jonah. Let's point out. <laughs> Peter Mayhew, the, the actor who knows who played Chewbacca. And yes, I know that off the top of my head. What kind of a, as, you know, what kind of. As did I, you know, I'm not a Philistine. Good, I would argue a good portion of the, what made the Chewbacca character work back in the original trilogy is that even though, yes, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mayhu is underneath a giant mask of fur and all that kind of stuff, but the eyes communicate a heck of a lot. And then, of course, Chewbacca is uh, the dog that George Lucas had as a, you know, mm-hmm. he used to sit in the the passenger seat in the front seat of a car. I'm sure I'm speaking, I'm sure some of Jonah's dogs must have done this at some point. And so he said that, you know, but, but the dog was named Indiana. Which is, of course, a you know great reference, you know, great yeah, yeah. joke later on in Indiana Jones movies. You know that that Chewbacca, with all the times you've looked at your dog, and he hasn't seemed like merely an animal, but he has seemed a kindred soul. That's Chewbacca, right? And that's you know, I think I think Mayhu in his eyes communicated a lot of that uh, in that. And I think the new guy, Junus Mlul, okay, I don't know the, the the limit of my Star Wars geekery. I don't know the pronounce the name of the the new guy playing Chewie. I think he pulled that off pretty darn well. Yeah, no, I thought that was good. And I got to say, it would be uh, like I had no idea. You could do a great movie poster of this about sort of Han Solo versus Chitulu. Because <laughs> uh, and this is a spoiler. Sorry, people. But there is a scene in this where basically it's it's, it's freaking Chitulu or yeah. uh, Jack will later later correct me on the correct pronunciation of Chitulu. But He's the old one demon god who's living in this nebula. And I just was like, I was amazed that that didn't become more of a thing on the, on the Twitters. But, um, all right. No, I, I basically agree with you. And I think the shooting first thing was a nice, nice touch. And, uh, and I thought that Lando Calrissian kind of stole the show. But that was to be expected. And uh, that's all I got. You got anything, any, any last shout outs? Uh, look, I was going to say, for people who are surprised at how well it worked, Look, I think you know the, the success, and you know all, all, it's very it's very tough for a movie to overcome bad casting, and a lot of not so great movies can thrive if they have good casting. Jonah, if you and I ever get a chance to make a movie together, I suggest we follow the rules of Solo and cast Woody Harrelson to play a Woody Harrelson character, um, Amelia Clark to play an Amelia Clark character, and uh, Paul Bettany to play a Paul Bettany character. Like each one of them is playing in their wheelhouse of the kind of characters they've thrived at over the course of their careers. Uh, and I think it works really well. You, you, you don't really look at anybody and say, oh, they're terribly miscast. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, the, the, cla- the truly great example of that is, of course, Sean Connery, who plays Sean Connery yes, in right. every single movie he's in. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, Jim, thank you for coming here. I'm going to do some cleanup work with uh, with with Jack, but uh, thank you for coming in in a pinch while I'm sort of away from uh, home base. No problem, anytime. Very much uh, enjoyed it, Jonah. And when you are done with, obviously, you know, you got this giant, uh, unexpected, and unpleasant curveball. Let me know when your schedule is clear. I think I want to hang out with you after hours sometime. Uh, that can be arranged. Cool. All right, take care, man. Bye, man. See ya. See ya. Bye.
All right, so uh, Jim, actually, I guess Jim hasn't left the building, but he's left the podcast. Um, and uh, we're going to do just some quick cleanup work. Uh, first of all, Jack, you there? Yes, I am. Uh, any any corrections, ombudsman like? Did I did I mispronounce Chitulu? Chitulu. Uh, so I've always pronounced it Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah, that might be right. Now that I think about but it. We should ask uh, John J. Miller about this. We should because he's should. the the Lovecraft expert in our in our um, acquaintance. Um. Okay. Be that as may, do you have any other disagreements with us about uh, Solo? Because I know this is an issue that is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> well, I, I've seen it, and I saw it despite considering boycotting the movie because they didn't cast me in the title role. Uh, I think I would have been great. And I, may, I tried to make that case, but I, I was unheeded. So, But I saw uh, it anyway. And I'm, I'm going to question your police work there, but uh, go on. Yeah, um, Yeah. okay. Um yeah, I saw it, and I'm at, I'm I'm a bit conflicted because I mean I didn't I thought it was fine. Uh, there are a couple of things about it that I'll remember a year from now, <laughs> um, but at the same time, there's a growing Star Wars backlash, especially in quote unquote internet culture, and it's really bringing out the op, the uh, what's the that's that disorder oppositional defiant disorder. Where uh-huh. you just instinctively recoil from whatever is popular or whatever people tell you to do or to think, it's bringing out the the backlash against these Star Wars, these newer Star Wars movies, is making me just sort of want to be a contrarian and say, "No, they're awesome. You're totally wrong." Um, so I'm a, I'm a little conflicted. So I'm not sure what to believe. But at the same time, I should remember that Disney doesn't really care. Uh, they're gonna they're making millions of and billions of dollars, so they're not really gonna. It's not like they're going to miss my dollar if I don't give it to them. But they're going to own everything anyway soon, so nothing matters in the end. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, do I think that they should... I think they should be worried about the, the the shortfall that this one had in terms of box office. I mean, I saw it opening weekend um, with my daughter, and we bought I bought tickets like seven days in advance precisely because I thought it was going to be a zoo. And I'd say the theater was only, you know, maybe a little more than half full on the Saturday of opening weekend. And Disney has invested a lot in this franchise. And um, I think it was Pod who was pointing out over on Glop that, you know, Marvel, the Marvel movies, they care enough to actually make them pretty good movies. And I think there's more of an attitude with the Star Wars stuff that... Um, you don't have to put in as much effort and as much thinking in them. And I think that's a mistake because you could reach a tipping point where people, you know, they're, they're, they're one Jar Jar Binks like fiasco away from destroying, you know, the franchise for lots of people. There's not a huge amount of goodwill towards the star Wars franchises. And so I do think they should take them a bit, bit more seriously than they do. Uh, so I'll, I want to pull a Rob Long here. Um, because I feel like he would, his response to what you just said would be like, well, of course, what do you mean? Of course they're thinking about, do you think they just sort of lazily put this together and we're like, oh, we don't, we'll make money on this. Let's just, uh, let's just feed the script into an algorithm and we'll, we'll, we'll just lazily sit there while, uh, a robot films. I think they did try, but I think here's my, 
Good. I'll get more haters. I people. I got a lot of haters after um, I revealed that I wasn't a huge fan of the Muppets. So I'll, I'll let me attack Star and Wars. Well, look, and, and 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 rightly so. Okay. But anyway, go on. Yeah. Uh, let me let Muppets me say something critical about Star Wars fans now. I think that with what John said about these movies not meeting expectations, I I don't think that's possible. People, Star Wars fans, especially ones who grew up on these movies, have this this uh, this. Sen- the sense of what they should be that may or may not actually reflect reality. Like, oh my gosh, this was my childhood. Oh, holy crap, these movies are amazing. And so anytime, like, now that they're adults, they see these movies and they don't conform with their expectations of what they were as children or how they made them feel as children, they're like, oh my gosh, this is, my childhood is ruined, Star Wars is ruining everything, Disney's ruining everything, blah, 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 blah. So... Yeah, I mean, they, they're just movies in the end. They're just, you just, you sit in the theater, you, you eat popcorn while watching them, you hope you don't regret the money or the time you spent watching them. That's what they should be. So if, if, if Solo is just a movie and it makes more Star Wars fans think, oh, they're just movies, then sure, that's fine. I'm sure it's yeah, fine. Here, I'll make substandard fans angry at me now, too. It's dark, Jack. It's just very, very dark. Um... <laughs> Anyway, I, we, we, I got to get out of here. I, I still have to write a G file. So other things going on. Um, I'm going to be uh, in Chicago, right? Uh, for the, it was at the Chicago Literary Festival. The Chicago Tribune Literary Festival. Chic Trib yeah. Lit Fest or something, I think is how they're abbreviating it. And I'm going to be giving a talk on the book, and it's going to be open to the public. So if you missed me the last time I was in Chicago, please come on out. And then I'm doing a swing through Florida, and then I think things kind of dry up for a little bit um, in terms of public stuff in the summer, but then we got a pretty full fall coming back up. Um, I was supposed to be on special report tonight, but obviously that's going to be difficult to do from Fairbanks. And everything will be up at jonahgoldberg.com, including the show notes to this glorious episode. And anything else that we need to address? Uh, is there anything, what's the, what's the weirdest thing about Alaska that you don't think most people listening to this podcast would know? Other than the stuff you just mentioned about bears being everywhere. Well, the bears are not everywhere, like downtown Fairbanks, but like, like if you go, you know, like there are a bunch of like woods near Washington, DC, right. That will have things like maybe Fox and, you know. You know, sloth, not sloths, uh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the creepy uh, animals with the long fingernails? Possums. You know, they'll have, like, small vermin, um, deer, coyotes, that kind of stuff. The bobcat the coyotes, if it escapes. Yeah. But, like, you can go off into the woods around Fairbanks, and it's dangerous, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, like, dangerous. And maybe not, you know, five minutes out of town, but, you know, an hour out of town, and you're, you're, you're in the wild. You're, you're in a, you know, a discovery channel documentary and um uh so i don't know oh so like for for instance um one of my nieces who i think some people might recall i uh she works at uh these hot springs uh china hot springs she runs the horses and sled dogs up there and about a year ago a bear was attacking a tourist rv trying to get into it and the people inside were screaming and she quietly walked up and shot it in the back of the head and killed it. And which is, I think pretty badass. 
Um, and then I found out last night that Callie did it again about five days ago. So a bear was getting into the stable or into the kennels, and uh, she, you know, Austin Lovis did it um, with her sidearm. Um, and that's just not stuff that happens, you know, in the world that I grew up in. And um, I don't know, but the other thing is, it's, it's, you know, I woke up this morning to go to the bathroom at like 2.30 in the morning, and it's, it was light out. You know, I mean, it wasn't sunny, but it was, it was, you know, it was dusky light out and the, the sort of 18 hours of sunlight you get at this time of year is kind of freaky and kind of, it's one of these weird things. What's the thing in, 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 um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's that bit about how you have this innate sense when you meet someone really far away from really far away, but earth is so small that you really don't feel it powerfully. But when you meet an alien, it like really feels like you're meeting someone from really far away. When you come up here, you, it kind of, it reminds you you're on a planet <laughs> um, because a lot of the rules that you take as bedrock of reality just aren't the same in terms of like night and day. If you come here in winter, how cold it is, you kind of feel like you're on a lunar outpost at times. You know, the coldest I've ever experienced was 52 below zero. And that's not a wind chill. That was like ambient temperature. And when you experience that, it just kind of reminds you, oh my gosh, this is a planet, you know, susceptible to the forces of, you know, that of, of, of the solar system or of nature and all these kinds of things. It kind of takes you out of your head a little bit, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, the pale but I like blue dot. Here. A pale, it's pale blue dot. And, uh, I don't know what else. I'm sure I'll think of something else that's interesting about Alaska, you know, later, but you know, I'm not, and I don't pretend to be some profound expert on Alaska. I know more about Alaska than people who haven't been here, but I don't know Alaska like someone who actually grew up here or anything like that. I'm not trying to put on airs about it, but it's just, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating, truly different culture than a lot of, uh, the rest of the country. This episode anyway. brought to you by the Alaska tourism board. <laughs> not really. Yeah, no, no, but people should come up here. I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, the, you know, I've done a lot of Alaska cruises. You know, people don't really understand how friggin' big this state is. Um, I don't know. It's about three and a half times the size of California. There's a great, you know, because all these Texans love to talk about how big Texas is. There's a great T-shirt, you know, postcard. You see it all over the place, which has um, to scale Texas inside of the state of Alaska, with Alaska saying, "Oh, isn't she cute?" <laughs> <laughs> and so it's you know, Alaska's huge. But it still has, I think, basically the population of Washington, D.C. And so it gives you a sense of how sparsely populated the place is. And when you also when you consider that, I think I would guess 80, 90 percent of the population population lives in basically three metro areas. Right. So Fairbanks, Anchorage and uh, Juneau. You realize that it's just, you know, it's a, it's a lot of frontier out there. So anyway, we're going very long. I got to write a G file. Um, and, uh, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Please keep buying the book. If you can, please subscribe to national review. Please subscribe to the podcast. Oh, Ben Shapiro, I think is just flat out wrong because we did, we had a huge bulge in reviews and it's not like it sent us flying up the iTunes charts. So there has to be some other thing in the algorithm that this just simply great. reviews. Um, I, I insulted a couple of fan bases in my remarks, and now you've said Ben Shapiro is wrong. So we're just going to be it, rolling in the haters. 
it's possible for Ben Shapiro to be wrong about things. It happens. Um, you know, Rub it in. Let's let's just not, double down on this. Ben is not the Pope of me, but uh, oh, and we got word. Uh, oh, so Jew, uh, this Saturday tomorrow, I think uh, C-SPAN is running my conversation with John Podoritz about my book, and next weekend uh, my conversation with Ben Shapiro on his show um, will go up. And I'm sure there are other media things to announce, but I can't remember what they are. And again, it's time to go. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>